limited number of books through the years at the library next to my home and some I held close to my chest so dear but they were always on loan but if the pages make me smile like a fool maybe for once I won't follow the rules I'll keep it until it's long overdue when I find my favorite book to read I've read a story that opened my eyes to the world and its passing time and another one sang a sweet song to my heart but the ending was sad from the start and then came along just an ordinary book that i happened to give a second look it was humor and heartbreak and something in between the most beautiful one i'd ever seen and your pages made me smile to the Melius Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Ross Di Corletto. I've known Ross for 10 years or more. We worked together previously in a past life in a mining company. Uh, Ross has a PhD in the area of occupational hygiene or industrial hygiene if you're US-based. In this uh, episode I talked to Ross about what is uh, occupational hygiene, industrial hygiene, um, the benefits for our workplace, and we also delve into some of the topics that Ross is interested in, particularly on heat stress and risk management. Um, pretty interesting conversation. It's a new subject that we haven't actually broached on the podcast, so it might be of interest for those of you 
who are very interested in occupational health and safety. But if not, there's always something to get out of these episodes. If you're athletes as well, uh, or coaches in regards to heat stress, some stuff here and some good resources here that um, Ross has in relation to uh, thermal stress management. Um, if you want to get in contact with Ross, just scroll on there to the show notes and you can see his website and contact details and so on. And uh, if you Google his name as well, you'll find him on some other podcast episodes um, that you can have a listen to as well if you're interested in getting in touch or listening to more about uh, Ross's work. As always, you can uh, follow us at mediasconsulting.com.au or up on Twitter at mediasperform, over on Instagram, mediasperform. And if you have any feedback on the podcast or you have any questions, you'd like to submit ian.dunican at mediasconsulting.com.au. That's M-E-L-I-U-S. Head over to the website as well for lots of free information, podcasts, blogs, and uh, to find out more about the services and solutions we offer. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or where you get your podcasts. Be much appreciated. And, uh, yep, here is Dr. Ross DiCorletto. Welcome back to Media's Performance Podcast. Today I am joined by my old friend. Well, I shouldn't say old friend. Well, he is old friend, but he's, a young, he's a young, my young friend as well. It's uh, Ross D. Corletto. We've had some adventure Ross in our days. We were just reminiscing before we started recording. How are you today? Very good, thanks, Ian. Yes, it's been uh, it's been a few years since we first uh, strolled down some streets. Uh, <laughs> so for history of uh, people, if we if we're talking about some stuff, uh, Ross and I both used to work for a, a large mining company. We both worked in the corporate um, health and safety team on the health side. So mm-hmm. there was a few people that were like medical doctors, a couple of occupational hygienists. There was one guy that was like a wellness guy. And then I was like the fatigue human performance dude. And uh, Ross was in that team. So myself and Ross have, you know, um, collaborated in that team in you know all over the world and sort of you know supported each other in that area um and ross was in that area before i joined and ross is a occupational hygienist so which means which doesn't mean that you clean toilets ross is that that's correct is that? that's correct yeah. that's correct it's a, it's an unfortunate title occupational hygiene it's um, it, it gives that connotation that uh, you know, I've been to dinner parties when you say, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm an occupational hygienist. And you get that knowing look, oh, yeah, <laughs> this guy's, you know, he cleans toilets or whatever, or teaches people how to wash their hands. But, no, it's a, it's a great profession. It's, uh, it's a scientific-based profession, obviously. Um, and people in our ranks come from, uh, you know, they can be chemists, uh, industrial chemists, engineers, uh, Allied Health, OTs have started in that profession. And they go back and they do um, uh, a postgrad in occupational hygiene, uh, whether it's a master's or, or, or something of that nature. Uh, and then they go on to, to develop up in the area of occupational hygiene. It's, when I try to explain it to people, it's, uh, it's about looking after the, the health of the worker. Um, so we assess the work environment to help control those exposures and minimise those exposures. And if I, I guess in three words, what we do is um, we're there to prevent worker harm. So, and that's basically what we do. 
Yeah. So it doesn't involve toilet brushes at all. <laughs> That's a bit of, uh, that was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, comment because uh, lo- lots of people would say that about occupational hygiene. What, what do you mean, like, to clean toilets? I was like, oh. <laughs> No, I've copped that quite a few times. <laughs> what, what, what would be a better title, Ross? You, you've been in this area for quite a while. What do you think would be a better title to have? Um, I think something to uh, in relation to uh, to the, um, the the work environment. So a work a work environment uh, health specialist or work environment uh, scientist or something. You know, a number of uh, magazines. Uh, for example, the um, Annals of Occupational Hygiene. Yeah, it's changed their name. They're they're now uh, the Journal of Worker Health. Really. So they're looking down that path. Yeah. So I think that better describes what we do because we. We're almost, you know, my my son's in the field as well, and I asked him, you know, how does he describe what occupational hygiene is? And uh, he said, well, one of the ways you can do it is, it's, remember the old TV show CSI? Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. We go we go out into the um, where the the incident has happened, and we investigate. We use scientific instruments, and we use deduction and problem solving, and we ha- we come to a conclusion to help prevent it from happening again. So that's the sort of thing we're doing. It's a fascinating field. No two days are ever the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, in my career, I've, it's, I've been fortunate enough to, as you know, to to travel all over the world uh, practicing my profession. It's been brilliant. Yeah. So, Ross, how how did you get into this? Because um, it is an interesting. It's not like you go to school, you know, and you're a teenager and you're 15 or 16 and you're sitting there looking out the window and going, "I'd like to be an occupational hygienist to prevent <laughs> worker harm." You know, yeah. I often because I often think this by myself. I didn't look out the window and go, "Oh, I'd like to be a sleep scientist slash chronobiologist." I couldn't even spell like sleep, you know, never mind chronobiology. So how how did you how did you come to this? What what sort of education and, and experience brought you to this? Right, I was actually it was quite by accident. I, I started off uh, working in the laboratory as a scientific assistant, and I went back to school and did my my undergrad in uh, applied chemistry, and I was working in a power station, and our role was basically you know, t- you know, maintaining water quality and coal quality in the mines and whatever, uh, and testing that. And it was in the uh, early, the late seventies when asbestos be- started to become a big issue, and the engineers in the, the in the power industry were going, "Well, what's this asbestos stuff? I mean, we don't know anything about it. It's not engineering. Give it to the chemists." So it got lumped down into the lab, and uh, we started doing a bit of work in there and as I got into it the asbestos well, it was reasonably interesting but then we started to look at other areas noise and dust and all that and I thought hey this is interesting so uh, then from there I went back to, to uni and picked up some additional qualifications and sort of fell into the role um, and yeah I've never looked back it's uh, I didn't know what an occupational hygienist was at the time I didn't even know I was doing occupational hygiene <laughs> I thought I was just you know, doing this sort of unusual chemistry work and uh, I enjoyed it and stayed with it. And at that time, Ross, was occupational hygiene a defined, you know, role? Was it like, was it like a profession, we'll say, already or, you know? I think it was really emerging. If you look at the the, the actual Institute of Occupational Hygiene, uh, it sort of started to really evolve in the in the 80s. And uh, one of you know, the, the likes of Gersh Major and Pamela De Silva, who were the leading lights in the, in the field, uh, they started to develop the profession, but it wasn't really a well-known profession. And, you know, there was a, a, a 13-week course done in, uh, I think it was the University of New South Wales, but that was about it. Mm. And then from there it evolved. And in more recent times, it's, it's grown. Uh, in the UK and in the US, obviously established before then, uh, 
going right back, but I don't know if they were really called uh, occupational or industrial hygienists, but it was, there was a profi- sort of profession there. So what's the difference, Ross, between an industrial hygienist and an occupational hygienist, or is there a difference? One's American, one's Aussie or a POM. That's the difference. <laughs> People are going, which is which? That's right. Well, the industrial send, you, hygienist, send, send your answers on a postcard to P.O. Box. <laughs> yeah. Americans call them industrial hygienists and some of the South American countries and some of the Asian countries call them industrial hygienists. Yeah. Um, those are the British, uh, the South Africans, the Australians, we tend to say, call them occupational hygienists. Identical, all identical. Ross, you said like uh, earlier on that people come from lots of different backgrounds and professions into occupational hygiene. Is there a set of common skills that people need to be an occupational hygienist? Do they need to be like scientifically minded, really good at maths, really good at writing, a bit of everything? Yeah. Or does, do people come with different skill sets for different areas? They do come with different skill sets, but there is a core requirement. You do need to have some uh, uh, an understanding or education, shall we say, in the, the hard sciences. So uh, it really is a benefit if you've done physics, chemistry, and those sorts of, of subjects. Yeah. Because if you're looking at things like, uh, you know, e- exposures to hazardous chemicals, you know, toxicology can be quite useful. You need that understanding of chemistry. If you're looking at heat and noise and ventilation, you need understanding of physics and all those sorts of things. So you do need a hard science background. But having said that, um, you know, I've got a colleague that started as a botanist and went on to become a very successful hygienist. And you know, geologists and OTs um, have gone into the field. It's just how they develop. It's the problem-solving part that is the most important part, is that, yeah, that yeah. understanding. But, yes, it, uh, you do need some hard science behind you. It's interesting, Ross, because, um, and you would probably feel the same about this as well, and I, I find this is interesting when you speak to people and you try to explain about, you know, um, subject matter area so if you look at like health and safety broadly people go oh health and safety you know it's just an area but then you break that down you further divide it you know and we'll take health for example we can further break health down into like things like occupational medicine occupational hygiene or industrial hygiene we can break it down into the wellness or the allied whatever health whatever way you want to call it and then you break down occupational hygiene again and you're even taking there like you know there's noise there's vibration there's dust there's you know there's thermal stress there's toxicology it's further again and further again and further again like it's really it is such a because even as an occupational hygienist you would think from the outside you would think that's a very specialist area but even within that there's specialities within that again so it must be very difficult you have to be kind of quite broad across a lot of subjects and but then some people are quite deep like yourself which we'll talk about in a moment like you're quite broad but you also have a speciality in in thermal stress Mm -hmm. um so, like, how hard is that to cultivate that knowledge? Is it is it kind of a continuous, you know, education process every year to stay on top of it? Is it is it one of those kind of professions where you just never feel like you're reaching expert level? I think you're right. You do have to have a general knowledge across a number of the different fields, uh, as you mentioned, uh, and that's important. You know, you need to have enough knowledge to know where to go if you're not sure about something. Mm. Um, I, If you go into the specialist areas, sometimes that can be quite challenging because you're right, you have to be constantly on top of things, uh, reading papers, uh, looking at new technology. I mean, that's happening at the moment, all this new technology, real-time monitoring and personal monitoring that sends 
things up to the cloud. I mean, I'm, I'm testing one at the moment. Um, so you have to keep on board. Uh, I mean, I've been in the field and in the game now for over 40 years, but every, you know, every day I learn something new mm. and you have to keep on board. Um, you just tend to specialise in an area that you find that you enjoy. And for me, it happened to be, uh, you know, uh, heat stress or thermal environment and, uh, you know, critical risk management. They're my, the two areas I enjoy and I spend more time looking at those. So, Ross, you did your PhD in that area of, uh, you know, thermal environment, thermal stress. What made you kind of pick that area to, to get into? Was it something you were doing in work or was it just you had a bit of a, a fascination with it or is it the fact that you were you live in Queensland? <laughs> I was actually all, my, all of the above. <laughs> I did my master's of research in heat stress, but I did my PhD in biological monitoring uh, for carcinogen exposure. The reason I got into heat stress was purely by chance. I shifted from Queensland, uh, from Victoria to Queensland, and a new, very new role. I knew absolutely nothing about heat stress. And uh, I was walking into the plant one day. And to walk into the, this particular site, you had to walk past the medical centre. And I was walking in, and as I was walking in, the, the managing director was uh, in front of me, and, I, and he stopped because an ambulance pulled up, our site ambulance, and they were pulling someone out of the back of the ambulance. And um, we stopped in, uh, in front of it, and he looked over and he asked the, the ambulance driver, you know, what, what was the problem? He said, oh, we think that he suffered a heat stroke or heat exhaustion and he looked over to me and he said well what do you know about heat stress Ross I said no not a lot I came from Victoria and he said well you're going to become an expert (laughs) I got told what I was going to do so off I went and uh, started my master's by research and uh, yeah so that's that's how it started and I started I enjoyed it I loved it and kept at it and so Ross how would you define let's say you know, heat stress or thermal stress. What is it? Because lots of people like say, oh, I'm heat stressed or there might be like, might be a little bit hot or, you know, people come over to Australia from, for holidays like my dad last year who nearly died when he got here when it was 40 degrees. Um, you know, we've all seen, had those stories or people go up north or go to these hot areas. Mm-hmm. What what exactly is, is, is thermal stress or heat stress? I, I think you need to define two terms. Okay. One term is, Heat stress or thermal stress, and the other one is heat strain or thermal strain. Right? Strain, yep. So heat stress is the impact of uh, you know the heat, humidity, workload, you know, the clothing you're wearing, all those sorts of things. They create a heat stress on the body. Okay. Now the body reacts to that heat strain via thermal strain. It demonstrates shows thermal strain by increasing the the sweat rate or uh, increased core temperature or, you know, or increased heart rate. So that's a thermal strain as a result of the heat stress. Now, the other thing too is if you talk to people and you say to them, and, you know, I often do it in the training sessions, explain to me when someone is under heat stress and they say, oh, you know, they get cramps, uh, you know, they're dehydrated, they faint, or they get heat exhaustion or heat strike. And that, in effect, is really the top of the pyramid if you look at thermal uh, thermal strain or from the start, right at the very base, what you get is this initial uh, fatigue or lethargy. You know, if you go to some of these hot, humid areas, that you, you really feel quite lethargic and uh, and tired quite often. If you do nothing about it, 
it next moves up to another level where it starts to impact on productivity. Uh, and uh, there's actually some brilliant studies being done recently by, um, I think it's the University of Thessaly in Greece, where they look at uh, the impact of, on productivity. And there's quite a significant drop. Uh, the, um, and they're estimating just roughly you know, for every two, two degree, sorry, for every degree WBGT, which is just a measure, um, centigrade above 25 degrees, they're seeing up to 2% reduction in productivity. So it's quite a significant impact. And, and in that area too, it's not always necessarily thermal stress. It can also be, or thermal strain, it can also be thermal discomfort. So they're the initial parts. If you keep ignoring it, you start to see an impact on cognitive function. Uh, and that, that's, um, that can be quite uh, significant. And, you know, there are studies recently done, University of Adelaide, and uh, there's some work being done by NIOSH in Washington State that's showing that the more uh, you get into this area, the, the impact it also results in increased injuries in, in safety incidents and safety incidents. So that's already you're starting to see this impact, a much broader impact. Mm. After that, if you still do nothing, then you start to get into the symptoms that we're familiar with, you know, the cramps and the dehydration and that, and then eventually the, the exhaustions and the strokes. So it's quite a, a continuum from uh, from the bottom on all the way up. So you start with thermal discomfort or thermal comfort and then get into the, the increased thermal strain and the serious illnesses. So, Ross, course, sorry. So go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, and of course, that doesn't even talk about chronic illness, which we can we can mention. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you, like, um, is there any particular set of factors that influence your sort of uh, at-risk factors for developing thermal stress or thermal strain, yeah. such as, you know, ethnic background, you know, myself being, you know, translucent nearly, <laughs> like a newborn tadpole. Um, what about body weight? What about body fat? What about... I don't know, eye colour, hair colour, is there any sort of set of factors that predetermine someone's risk profile? You know, we often see this in, in different areas, you know, body mm. fat percentage, body fat distribution, you might give you a risk of X, Y, Z outcomes, you know, BMI is a very crude measure that's used a lot of times for, yeah. you know, type 2 diabetes risk, sleep apnea, cardiovascular disease and so on. Do we have any other set of factors where we can screen people or look at sort of in a crude way of binning people for factors? There are. Um, the, the impact varies from individual to individual as well. And you're right, there's things like um, uh, you know, age, uh, fitness, general health, uh, medications. There are numerous medications mm -hmm. that impact on, uh, uh, on, on heat stress and particularly illicit drugs. Again, you know, the methamphetamines and the cocaines and the like impact on the, uh, the thermal you know, the hypothalamus and thermal control mechanisms within the body. So there are those aspects. Um, the BMI, uh, hypertensive individuals may be more exposed. So as an individual, yes, there are a number of factors and, and there's some some doc, there's some guidance out there that, sh that shows you what to screen for when you do pre-employment medicals for that sort of uh, predisposition. If you've had a serious heat illness in the past, you will be more than likely will become predisposed to having it again. So that's another aspect that you need to look at. And then, I mean, that's the individual. That's that's yeah, a heap yeah. of variables there. Oh, lots, yeah. Then you've got. Okay, the I found this on the. Then you've got the. Um, what was that? That was Siri that turned on for some unknown reason. They're always listening, Ross. 
Yeah. They're always listening. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very disconcerting. Um, then you've got uh, the, obviously the work environment, so the, the different temperatures, different yeah. humidities, how hard you're working, different workloads. So if I'm a supervisor with a clipboard, I'm generating a certain amount of internal uh, metabolic heat load, which is not really high, you know, probably about the same as one of the old-fashioned 100-watt lot globes. But if I'm swinging a pick and shovel you know, or a sledgehammer, then I'm generating a lot of metabolic heat that I have to dispose of, mm-hmm. and that's going to impact as well. And then, you know, so that's that's two variations. So you've got the work, the individual, uh, you've got the work environment, and then you've got the task itself. So there's three variables that you have to, to keep in mind, and all of those impact on uh, the risk factors for, for heat stress and heat strain. So, Ross, you mentioned there about, like, if you had a, you know, a thermal stress incident before, um, what about people would say, you know, in work sites, not mm. only on work sites, but even in sporting activities as well. You just need to get used to it. The more times you expose yourself to it, the better you're going to get at it, you know, as in terms of managing heat stress. Is there any truth behind that or is that just, you know, bullshit really? Uh, no, there is some truth behind that. That's the, the concept of acclimatization. And uh, there is uh, significant benefits for someone that's acclimatized. And it's something that we look at when we, for example, we look at uh, our work, workplace procedures for heat stress and the like. One of the areas that's often forgotten about is uh, uh, heat acclimatization, mm. thermal acclimatization. And one of the, the few uh, you know, collapses that I've, I've witnessed was as a result of uh, someone not being acclimatized. It was, it was quite an unusual scenario. Um, uh, this gentleman was working at 30, 32 degrees, um, jackhammering some scale off a vessel, and he collapsed. And young, fit. Um, and we, when we were doing the incident investigation, we said to the, the supervisor, you know, we don't understand. You know, he's done this job many, many times. Why all of a sudden did this happen? And he said, yeah, you know, I don't understand it either because, you know, He'd just been on two weeks' leave, so he'd come back and he would have been well-rested. So, you know, we, we gave him the, 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 the toughest job on the day. I said, well, okay, well, where did he go for leave? He said, oh, he's in Queenstown skiing. <laughs> so here's a guy being in Queenstown for two weeks and then he came back to site and he was, you know, he didn't, didn't quite adapt. He wasn't acclimatised. But getting back to the actual the, the physiological process, there are a number of things that change. You know, you get a, your increased heart, the lowering of your heart rate because you get an improved stroke of the heart, you know, the, the, the efficiency of the heart. Your exercise capacity increases, your sweat rate increases because one of the, the body's key mechanisms for cooling is the evaporation of sweat off the skin. So, it, this, you know, we sweat more, air blows over it, it evaporates. You get that, that cooling effect, mm. dilated blood vessels in the skin, because the heart's now pumping a lot stronger and you get a cooling of the core temperature. So that happens. And there's a, a hormone in the body that develops called aldosterone, and that reduces the amount of salts in your sweat. So although you're sweating more, you're losing less salts. So that's another you know, ad- adaptation. So you got, you're got improving your sweating, you're reducing the loss of salts, your heart rate's better. You know, there's all these things and plasma volume inc- tends to increase and then levels off a bit as well. So that all these things are happening. They don't happen straight away. Um, you'll find that uh, I think it's about seven days, 90% of those ad- ad- adaptations will occur. 
and you're fully acclimatised over two weeks. Yeah. And then you can start to lose that after about uh, four to five days. So, yes, there is definitely the body does adapt. And in the early days in the platinum mines in South Africa, which were quite deep and quite hot, pardon me, before the guys would come on site, they would do a time in the acclimatisation chamber to get them used to that uh, that temperature, and that's how they used to get them adapted. So, yes, yeah. it, it, there is scientific evidence to it, definitely. We see a lot of this happening now in sports as well. A lot of people using heat, um, heat chambers, you know, to promote adaptation before going to a, an event. We also see it as well. We've seen it. We've spoken about it in this podcast, but we see it in, in combat sports when people are trying to dehydrate and lose, you know, water weight yeah. before an event as well, using thermal stress to do that. And um, I suppose then the other thing, Ross, is um, do people never get used to it like people often say to me when i go you know i've been here for nearly 20 years in australia people go i go jesus hot today people go oh well you can't handle it because you're irish it's like well i've been here for like nearly 20 years so i think that's the case do some people do some people never be able to get used to it are they always going to struggle or do they just go home back to ireland like i suppose that's the question (laughs) i'm not i'm not a physiological expert but my understanding of it is that uh most people can adapt but they adapt to different extents. Yeah, yeah. Right, so, and some, and as I said, there's also that that factor of uh, thermal comfort as well. Some will tolerate the discomfort more than the others. So, you will adapt to some extent. Some will adapt better than others, and some you'll find as they get fitter, they do get better acclimatized and uh, more more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if there's a situation where you just never get a, a, never adapt. But uh, I think the body does learn, does learn lessons and and adapt to some extent. Just we're all individuals; we'll adapt differently. Yeah, I just laugh, you know. Like I lived in the Pilbara, where I get like forty five. So you know, if I was able to function up there, it's okay. I just I think people just like saying it to me because I'm pasty white. But you know, <laughs> so, so so it's it's yeah, just a yeah. It was interesting last year during one of the um, uh, the heat waves. They they interviewed a gentleman from uh, Cooper Pedy or Lightning Ridge, one of those opal places. And uh, he, he was shaking. He said, you know, an old timer. And he said, oh, gee, when it gets down to 35 degrees, that's when I put my jumper on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't know if that's quite the case. But, yeah, I, I think living a number of years, that they start to adapt. Yeah. But they also need to be careful because what we're now starting to see is a growing increase in chronic illness related to heat from people living in some of those areas and working yeah. in those areas. So there is a balance. That was one of the questions I had for you was actually what's the, you know, we talk about exposure over time. Is there a, if when you have that chronic exposure for 40 years living in a hot climate, mm. does that lead to then, you know, negative health outcomes? And if so, what are they? So like what, what would you see if somebody was living in a, living in a, in a Cooper PD or a Pilbara region or a, you know, a really hot area of Australia, for example, for 40 years, what, what tends to happen? In the long term, uh, those sorts of really long term uh, jobs, we start to see um, the appearance of skin diseases because of yeah. the cont- constant sweating and, uh, you know, the clogging of the skin and that. Sleep disturbance is another one. It's not unusual. Yeah. Um, uh, there's one called um, a psychoneurosis, which is, I think is like gone tropo. You know, it is an actual tropical lethargy that. Almost a you know constant feeling of uh, of tiredness. Uh, kidney stones. We're seeing a growing increase in kidney stones. Really? Yeah. Um, there's some, some studies done recently in the steel industry 
um, in glass industry, and we're starting to see a significant increase in uric uh, stones presenting workers presenting with kidney stones. And there's a new one that's come out. Um, I can't remember what it's called. It's got a really weird name: mesonephropathy, mesoamerican nephropathy, and it's a, a chronic kidney disease that they've discovered predominantly in the South Americas, but it's starting they're starting to see it in Asia as well. And it's an epidemic of, of chronic kidney disease. What they, They're not 100% sure what's causing it, but they know it's related to dehydration. They also think there could be some relationship to um, a breakdown of, uh, of sucrose and fructose, some of the sugars and the way that mm. the metabolites are formed. And they're seeing some really significant increases in, uh, in kidney disease. Um, there's a, a meta-study uh, meta done what was his name? Jay Sakara did one last year and showing an increase in Africa and Egypt and some of the Southern Asian countries. So that's becoming a real concern. And that was a meta-analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know what a meta-analysis is, basically to take a bunch of papers together and then they look at, they take all the data together and they analyze that data. So it might have 20 studies, kind of like a systematic review, but they take all that data and then they actually, you know, calculate the average the standard deviation of all those studies together to look at the effect sizes. So it's kind of, it's actually a really good thing to do because it's a really like in terms of top level of science compared mm. to like on the bottom level, we'll say of the, the shittiest science, somebody writing a blog, right? That's a completely <laughs> opinion based. And then you move up like observational studies, intervention based studies, randomized controlled systematic reviews. Meta-analysis is like the pinnacle because you're taking lots of really good studies and putting them together. So so that's that's really good then if it's a meta-analysis is the point i'm trying to make here yeah so there, uh, yeah. there's some of this and they're showing as i said they're, they're showing this increase in, in kidney disease which is a real concern um so we're now trying to educate people in that yeah okay you might think it's only a short-term thing and i've got some dehydration i've got a bit of a headache in the morning or mm -hmm. some cramps but continuously doing that over a period of time is going to impact on the body mm -hmm. you know, it's, so, Ross, the question there is, like, in these environments that are really hot, particularly in Australia, if you look at places like Darwin or the Pilbara and so on, these mining, oil and gas type towns, a lot of people drink a lot of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hot as well. So people do like a cold beer at the end of the day, you know, and you can't yeah. begrudge someone a cold beer at the end of like a 45 degree day and working hard. Yeah. Is that actually then potentially the kind of, we'll say their, their health factors? So in the, apart from the environment, apart from their kind of physiological makeup, then mm -hmm. you kind of will say their habits and behaviors. Mm -hmm. Was that also like a confounding factor here where if they're drinking lots of alcohol, it's leading to dehydration, then coupled with the heat, coupled with the physiology, it's just exacerbating these type of kidney diseases because lots of what you spoke about there was kind of kidney and dehydrated related. Mm -hmm. Or is it is it the same in people who have never drank alcohol? I, I know it's probably hard to find out probably now with limited studies, but what, what do you think may be going on there with that relationship? Well, yeah, it's a difficult one. I think, um, well, obviously, as you mentioned, the um, the issue with the alcohol is the dehydration factor. Yeah, so yeah. Generally, they, they say for every every glass you drink, you, you tend to pee out a glass and a half. It gives a whole It's a glass and a half and every pound of Cadbury's chocolate. That's right. Well, That's milk, glass, though. <laughs> glass and a half of uh, water that goes out for every glass of alcohol you drink. So... And, and, you know, we found uh, we, we've done studies in um, mining camps and in smelters and the like, and guys will go back and they'll, they'll have a beer, 
but they forget to rehydrate mm. and they'll come to work in the morning already, you know, with massively dehydrated and that they never actually catch up. They're constantly behind the eight ball. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's one of the, the factors. As to, I'm, I'm, I haven't really looked in depth at the actual, the, the direct relationship between alcohol intake and kidney disease. And I dare say there's probably a, a direct relationship between uh, that and obviously liver disease. But uh, with kidney disease, no, I haven't really gone into that. They did, there was a study done in Venezuela uh, in 2013, uh, Jimenez, I think it was, uh, who looked at the consumption of what they call sodas. Yeah, yeah. Which were um, uh, a lot of the, the sugar based, um, the corn syrup based drinks. And they were finding that they, they believe that now that there is a relationship between rehydrating using some of these corn syrup-based drinks and, uh, kid- and kidney disease. But, um, yeah, alcohol-wise, no, I couldn't I couldn't comfortably answer that one. I haven't yeah, been. yeah, that's okay. It was just a bit of a speculation. And then a probably sideways question off that, Ross, then, again, completely speculative here, so I don't feel like if you don't know the answer, it's okay, is uh, energy drinks because we're seeing lots mm. and lots of energy drinks, you know, um, being consumed and we see a negative impact um, in the workplace environment for like, we'll say sleep, for example, because they're so full of caffeine and taurine. Mm-hmm. We see it then for people getting headaches. We see it then for people using it as a kind of a, a pre-workout. We see people mixing it with alcohol as well. Is that yep. another one that would severely dehydrate people potentially? Well, it doesn't necessarily dehydrate. Um, I did some work with a, a colleague of mine that I used to work with. Uh, he was a, a nutritionist in Canada. And, um, uh, we looked at you, you can say you can say his name. He's not Voldemort, though Harry Potter. I don't. I think if you say his name, it's okay. That's all right. Um, <laughs> Is it our friend, our old friend, our old friend? Yes. Oh, we'll do a show. He might be listening, Gianni. If you're listening, yeah, we love Gianni you. Scalzo. We love you, Gianni. Yeah, based in uh, Montreal, uh, and yeah, so Gianni you know, helped me out because I was looking at this impact of caffeine. And so he did some research, helped me out with the research. And we actually found that caffeine is not a big factor. Mm, um, and it, a lot of athletes do use caffeine, prior, as you said, prior yeah, to, yeah. Um, to events and in the Olympics. It's, it's not unusual. Um, so what they're finding is that caffeine tends to be more of a diuretic for those that are less active, so office workers and those sorts of people. There is a, some people do have an individual dis, dis disposition to um, caffeine making, giving, having that direct effect. But in general, um, it's not as bad as I first thought it was. There is a study done by Armstrong in the 80s where all this evolved from. And he actually went back and redid the study. And if you read the study without being too scientific, there were some limitations to it. And he's gone back and he's reviewed it and he's come back with these limitations and said, well, actually, it didn't prove that. Hmm. So... Caffeine, to say that don't drink caffeine, it's a diuretic, it's just the, the consensus is starting to be that well, maybe that's not the case. However, there is a case for, as you said, uh, headaches. Uh, tachycardia is another one that's starting to make an appearance. Uh, so, yeah, you do need to be careful with those drinks. And if you think about the drinks, they're not very big, are they? You know, most of the sports drinks, well, apart from a couple I've seen, are small cans. Uh, so they don't add much to the fluid balance anyway. You're probably better off having a, a small cup of week, you know, normal cup of week tea, uh, to have a just an, as efficient an effect, but you don't get the same buzz. Yeah, Ross. Some some um, if we kind of look at more of the occupational 
uh, environment, we'll say for a second. We see a lot of times in construction, for example, lots of um, you know construction sites will say, once it gets to a certain temperature, we're going to close down. Or mm. certain companies will like, we don't enforce long sleeve and long pants here because of thermal stress. We're in long, long clothing, you know, mm. makes makes it makes it worse. Yeah. What would you say to um, companies, whether it be construction or rail or mining or oil and gas, that have those sort of rules in place around a temperature cutoff and or a clothing policy? Yeah, actually, it's interesting because I've just finished doing some work in that area for some companies. Uh, and the two, two, there's two things you need to look at. First of all, if you go for a cutoff in temperature-wise, that can be a real issue because if I'm working at, th- at 30 degrees and it's 25% humidity and I've got a good breeze blowing, I can work at that temperature all day without any adverse effect. Yeah. If I'm working at 30 degrees and it's 95% humidity and there's no air circulation whatsoever, you're almost guaranteed of having some, some thermal strain issues. So by saying a certain cutoff temperature, you're potentially putting people at risk. Mm-hmm. So to avoid that, you then have to become very, very conservative. So you have to keep dropping that temperature to protect everybody. Because yeah. remember, you have to protect the weakest link in the group. So if someone is, um, you know, has a BMI of 40 or higher or whatever, they've got a heart condition, and you're saying, well, our cutoff temperature is 30 degrees, well, you could be putting that individual at significant risk. And it doesn't matter how you drop it off. It just becomes impractical eventually. Um, I've noticed, I have seen some companies have uh, have gone that path. I would just say be very careful because you're not necessarily protecting everyone in the group. Uh, As we mentioned earlier on in this discussion, there are too many factors that impact on the thermal strain on an individual. And for you to pick out one of these and say, this is going to protect me, I would say be very, very careful. In relation to the long sleeve and short sleeve, um, yes, there is a difference because what we're doing is we're reducing, by putting long sleeves on, you're reducing the amount of skin that that is able to effectively uh, evaporate sweat. But then you've also got to look at, well, how much are we reducing it by? And you can actually model that using um, uh, some international standards, uh, predicted heat strain standards, which allows you to put in, if I'm wearing this type of of, uh, ensemble with short sleeves and short trousers or long sleeves and long trousers, and I'm working at this rate and this temperature, this air velocity, and you can calculate a predicted core temperature rise. And I've done this on a number of occasions, and generally there is a very small impact. Uh, for one particular task I did recently uh, over a number of different, the hottest days of the month up here in Queensland, we saw an increase of 0.1 degrees centigrade over a day's work. Mm-hmm. 0.1 is virtually nothing. So there is uh, an impact. Often it's, it's thermal comfort. People do feel uncomfortable wearing long sleeves compared yeah, yeah. to short sleeves, so you need to consider that. Um so that's where workers are seeing the benefit. Oh, it's short sleeve, therefore I feel more comfortable. You get better focus, better, better cognitive uh, function in some cases. But as for someone to say, I wear, if, if you make me go from short sleeve to long sleeves, I'm going to be suffering from uh, thermal strain that's going to result in an illness. No, not quite. 
it's more a comfort thing. Right. And the other thing to be, there's always another thing with heat stress. If you're working out in the sun or you're working in a smelter or your foundry whether it, or a bakery where there's a lot of radiant heat, by putting short sleeves on someone, you can actually be increasing the heat load because the shirt would provide some insulation factors from the heat and you're now taking that off. So you're allowing direct radiant heat to go onto the skin and onto the blood vessels. So... Again, it's not a simple black and white. You need to look at all these factors. Yeah, having this conversation on the weekend as we get older, realize that there's no like you know not everything is binary zeros and ones or yes and nos or you know it's this or that. It's so so many different things and so many people like are just looking for the answer, you know. And it's like yeah, it's like with the whole like you know coronavirus thing. Oh, yep. this test. It's like, well, what about the accuracy, the specificity and sensitivity? And people look at you cross-eyed going, what are you talking about? I'm mm. like, well, what if the test is wrong? But it says they had coronavirus. I'm like, yeah, but what if it's a it's a false positive? And they're like, what's that? I'm like, this is where we failed, guys. This is where we failed in school to teach people proper science, you know? Yeah. So and I think a lot comes back to the education process. Yeah. Uh, and it's one thing I've, I've always been a big, big um, fan of is this self-determination approach. You teach the individual what they need to know about what symptoms are and how their body reacts. They learn about how their body reacts to the heat, what they can cope with and what they can't cope with. And from there, they self-determine what's happening. And the average worker, you know, normally you've got to try and stop them from working rather than uh, them trying to bludge or anything like that. They, yeah, yeah. they want to work. They want to get the job done. But if they understand when their body's coming into um, you know, significant strain, then they pull back. Uh, and they need to be able to identify these signs and symptoms. And we don't, tra- we don't teach them that. Yeah. Uh, we, we give them, now this is when you're, you're, fa- you're about to faint or when you're cramping or when you're, you're delirious and dizzy. Well, that's too late. We need to teach them those early signs and how to, you know, a five-minute break here or there makes a hell of a difference. So, yeah, just an approach. What about then, Ross, when some people take novel approaches in an organization where they go, oh, well, if we have people work in the evening or a night shift when the sun's not out, we completely lower our thermal stress load or we do kind of weird rosters like midnight to midday. And mm-hmm. obviously, like from a fatigue risk management perspective, that's really bad because we talk about chronobiology and so on. But yeah. some people go, yeah, yeah, well, we'll just push that aside for a thermal stress thing. It's better might be less managers around, less people. We can get jobs done. It's like an off-peak period, you know, if it's in the mm-hmm. railways, for example, or it's a road-related road, road related thing. What's your what's your um, thoughts on, on sort of using that as an approach as well? That is actually quite a valid approach, uh, and I've recommended that at some sites. Um, often for, for some unknown reason, we do some of the hardest jobs in the hottest part of the day. So the, the, the planning of work. How often have you seen an outage, a major outage for a business or a site, and they do it in the middle of summer? Yeah. Why not postpone that to the middle of winter or, you know, or later on? Uh, introduction of doing some of the hotter tasks on night shift. Uh, you know, I've, I've used that on a number of occasions, and it's been very, very effective. Uh, you know, obviously, from your side of things, it can have an impact on how the body functions, but as far as from a thermal perspective, if you do the work in the cool part of the day, it makes more sense, uh, particularly if you're doing work out in the open when you know with the sun and yeah. that sort of stuff. So, uh, I, I, 
I, I think Ross actually, um, I think there's a happy medium where it's like you can design a roster, you know, for example, that's got a proper night shift, like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., for example, as a 12-hour one. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go 12 to 12 because you can get the chronobiology sort of thing in there. And then it's more about, it's more about that actually, I think it's more about the, the work task design. As in, yeah. when do we do these jobs? Like you said. So why do we have to do jobs that are exposed to the elements, heat and wind and so on, during the day when, particularly in coastal regions, when you've got crazy issues going on, like let's say in agriculture, you've got tarps blowing, so you're trying to battle a sea breeze in the afternoon at mm-hmm. three o'clock. Why not do that job at like 2 a.m. when it's a southeasterly breeze? You know, as an example here in Western Australia, when the wind is down, put that job there, put this job there. I think a lot of times... In, in companies, when we come across these variables, things have just been done for no real reason for a long time, just because that's how we've always done it. And exactly. when you start then challenging the kind of status quo of the work management, people go, start looking around, well, wh- why can't we? Why do we have to do like HV switching at 4 a.m. in the morning at the lowest time when we're, you know, cognitively not aware? Why can't we do it at 12 o'clock noon from a control room in the comfort of, you know, yeah. you know it's just that sort of like, challenge those things and i think yeah it's trying to find a happy medium you know between all those different variables like like we're saying the roster the thermal stress the the work balance and the environment too environment as well the wind whatever might be so all those factors have to come into play um Mm. to get that kind of optimal area and it's not easy and people think it's just like oh yeah we'll just do this and it's not it's, no, no. It's, it's difficult. So it's interesting you say that in some cases that's that's recommended because I, I actually said the same thing. It depends on what you're trying to achieve, what you're trying to do, and um, where the risk exposure is across time. Mm. I did an interesting job a number of years ago where they were constructing a, a large um, chemical containment vessel in uh, northern Australia, and it was, it was actually on the coast, and th- they had the same issue. They, they had not only issues with heat, they also had issues with um, welding fume and the like, and uh, and they were doing this the traditional, uh, you know, seven o'clock. They were doing ten-hour shifts or whatever, and uh, I said, "Well, why don't you, you know, change it so that you're doing most of the the, the hotter tasks at night?" And uh, there was no reason why they couldn't because they had lighting and everything. The other benefit, though, we found was at a certain time the sea breeze basically changed direction. And instead of blowing um, all the fume back into the vessel, by just changing some, uh, putting up some barriers, they were able to direct the sea breeze. So it actually produced a nice cool breeze through the vessel, it was a very large vessel, and also helped with the ventilation mm-hmm. of the fumes as well. So they didn't have to buy, uh, you know, buy all these big fans and things to to get that the process so that they were doing the dilution ventilation. They were using the natural ventilation and the change of the day and used the fans only when there was no breeze. So it turned out to be a very um, pro- uh, productive exercise simply yeah. by changing the time of the day they were doing the work. So yeah. it's quite clever. Yeah, there's always, there's always things you can do that are low cost and effective as well. You don't have to spend millions of dollars just redesigning stuff. You know, like your center, use those elements and timing of day. Mm, it was just purely by chance, but yeah. it turned out to be quite good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Ross, in every scientific discipline that we talk about in this podcast or anybody we have on, we always have a number of areas that we ask, um, is this basically true or is it bullshit? So, oh, okay. so it's not a rapid fire quiz, but I'm going to ask you one that come up, comes up a lot when I deal with athletes. Pickle juice for cramps and heat stress. Have you heard of this? 
I have heard of it. Pickle what you, juice. What do, you, what do you think? I can't find any data on it. The only thing I can think about with the pickle juice is possibly the salt content. Um, so there would be the pickle juice would have a significant um, level of uh, of dissolved salts in there. Yeah. Cramping is usually as a result of a high loss of fluids and loss of salts. So what the pickle juice may do is just replace those salts. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, yeah. short of getting uh, <laughs> doing a, a gas chromatography analysis of pickle juice and that sort of stuff. No, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I, I've, um, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't find any like scientific data. Lots of self-reported sort of things. But in, in even with some of the athletes, it's the inter-athlete variability is quite high. Like some guys be like, oh yeah, I got cramps and had pickle juice and it was perfect. Other guys, I drank about a liter of that shit and it didn't do anything for me. And it was horrible. I thought I was going to throw up. So it's always interesting to see um, what would be recommended. What, yeah, I, what, what is recommended, Ross, for people who are, you know, sweating a lot and losing a lot of, let's say, salts, electrolytes? Because yeah. um, lots of people grab, like we said, energy drinks, sodas, start drinking coffees, teas. Some people are like, yeah. just get any fluid down you. What, what's kind of a good mix that people should look out for? Oh, okay. Um, I, look, I, I tend to go for some of the, the more balanced um, uh, drinks, not so much the the, uh, the the sports drinks. Yeah. The I mean, they, they have their place, uh, but you need to look at the actual balance of, you know, of, of the carbohydrate and sodium content, potassium content, and all sorts of things in there. What we tend to recommend uh, for our, our, our workplace is that just drink plain water initially. If you know you, the job is going to be a, uh, you're going to be doing a lot of sweating, um, then I would recommend you take um, some kind of electrolyte drink uh, without naming you know, specific brands, but there are some good uh, le- electrolyte brands out there um, that you don't necessarily want ones with a lot of sugar in them. Ross, we're not the ABC here. If you have a brand that you think is good, you can name it. We're not the ABC. Oh, okay then. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, someone's got me going, I wish you just said the brand. Just say the brand. There's two that I, I tend to work with. One is, um, my, my, my brain's not the best at the moment, um, uh, it was developed by Curtin University. Uh, what was it it's called? not Aqualite, is it? Aqualite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that. That was used in some of the athletic groups I worked with, Aqualite, yeah. Aqualite and is it Gastrolite's the other one that Gastro, I yeah. work with? Yeah. Uh, they're they're my preferred purely because I know they've been they, they've got a balanced uh, yeah. amount in there. There's not a lot of sugar in them. Yeah, uh, because, you know, obviously for the flavour, people like to put sugar in. But I would say drink mainly water and then top up. You know, at the start of the day, partway through the day, towards the end of the day, top up with those um, electrolyte replacements to build get those salts back up. <laughs> we have to remember that. Now, our, do- our diets are usually pretty high in salt anyway, mm. so we're going to have a fair amount of salt in there. So um, these are really just top-ups. Now, I, sometimes I've, I've had people <coughs> excuse me, say, oh, yeah, but, you know, if you drink too much water, that can kill you too. Well, you know, yeah, that can happen, um, but it's very, you know, it, it's very rare that that does happen. It's happened in some athletes in um, 2000. In 15, I can remember there were two two athletes in the United States, uh, gridiron or you know football players that suffered from uh, hyponatremia, which is the, the illness, yeah, yeah. which is an increase in massive amount of water without replacing the salts, and then you get the swelling of the the, the, the cells because of the 
uh, the increased water. But that would, that would, you know, intravenous uh, fluids plus they were drinking 15 litres over a period of three hours, massive amounts of water. And there was a study done by two medicos from um, the uh, one of the local hospitals here in Brisbane, the Royal, Royal Hospital, on the, um, uh, the, the Kokoda Trail. They had some fatalities on the Kokoda Trail, which they thought was as a result of dehydration. But when they went and did the study, they actually found it was most likely it was hyponatremia. They were overhydrating mm. and not getting that, that salt balance. But the risk to hyponatremia compared to the risk to not enough uh, um, to not enough fluid, you know, they're, they're quite a while apart. So, yeah. yeah, I would say generally drink water and top up with electrolytes, but I wouldn't say you have to drink electrolytes all the time. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, Ross. Excellent. So if um, lots of good information in there, if you're new to occupational hygiene, that's a that's a great intro into it. I think a lot of people, you know, don't know much about occupational hygiene. So that's that's a great introduction into what an occupational hygiene is and, and what you do. Um, so, Ross, if people want to get in contact with you or, you know, you, you run your own business um, here in Australia, how can they get in contact with you? How can they find you? Uh, probably... Oh, the, the easy, we have a website, which is just a, it's just a general website. Um, it's uh, monitorcs.com.au, and that, that covers with a number of areas that we work with. I also have a thermal blog, which is pretty easy to read. Uh, it's called uh, thethermalenvironment.com, or you know, one word, thethermalenvironment.com, and um, it picks up a lot of these topics that you've actually um, – been uh, questions that you've been raising today and just gives you it's a a non-technical sort of uh explanation of some of these areas so they're the, probably the two easiest ways of contacting me yeah and the thermal environment blog is also linked on your website under the the blog tab as well so in the show notes if you if you scroll down there if you're on a uh, on a phone and you or you're on a website um you can just hit that hit that link and go over there to to ross's website monitor quite clever monitor there's actually mm-hmm. a monitor there. Uh, you'd have to click on it to see what kind of monitor it is. Consulting services, so you can find out all about the services you offer there, uh, contact you as well, and the blog, which uh, people can check out here as well and go back through all the archives as well and and dig into that detail if you wish. So yeah, I think it, like no matter who you are in terms of your work environment or an athlete, there's lots of stuff in here, lots of interesting and practical stuff, and also some links here to Ross being on other podcasts, such as the Safety of Science podcast as well. So lots of good information here for uh, people to avail of freely. Yeah, and just as one quick plug for the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists. Oh, we can't promote any organisations, Ross, only products. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's our, that is the, the, the professional, organ, the premier professional organisation for hygienists in Australia. And uh, if you need information on hygiene, it's occupational hygiene, that, that's the place to go, aioh.com.au. Yeah. They have uh, some re- some really good information there, and some um, some they have a conference every year as well. I think I spoke at your conference a couple of years ago, which was quite good. It was quite well received. Um, some practical, you know, um, questions there, which is quite good. I think the other good thing as well is we spoke earlier on about you know people wanting to do occupational hygiene and they come from a different scientific background and end up doing a masters and so on. There is also a basic course you can do. Um, 
which I undertook a number of years ago, which is like a, I think it's a 40 hour course. So basically like five days, okay, it's like cool. a basic occupational hygiene principles course. I think, believe it's called basic principles of occupational hygiene. But, exactly. Yeah. Excellent course to give you like, you know, um, particularly if you're in another area of health and safety, I think it was quite good for me to do, to kind of see all the different areas and, and understand what the hygienists do and how, you know, I could work with a hygienist and how, you know, there was crossover and overlap. So I think it's a very interesting course to do. Or if you're interested in becoming a hygienist or you're just trying to broaden your knowledge, even if you're not in the health and safety field, it's actually quite good. It's quite broad because, um, you know, it covers all of these areas and a little bit more as well. So I, I really enjoyed that. I did that in um, uh, Johannesburg, actually, a number of years ago, actually run by your colleague and my colleague, Mr. Ian Furt. Yes, that's right. So Ian ran that course there. So that was that was quite good. So yeah, so I'd encourage people to... Uh, to look at that course as well if you're interested ross is there anything else you would like to let our listeners know before we oh. depart for christmas no i think we've uh, we've had a good little chat this morning it's good to catch up yeah it's uh, excellent no just i think just to be aware that um with heat stress don't let it get to the point where you are seeing significant symptoms you need to keep keep on top of it early in the piece and uh, you know keep your fluids up and as soon as you start to recognize some of those symptoms, to, to act on it and cool yourself down wherever you can. Excellent. Well, look, Ross, I think we may be having you back on the podcast again, if you're willing. Maybe not to talk about heat stress, maybe not to talk about hygiene, but to talk about your new wood fire pizza oven that you're currently experimenting with. So that's a little bit of a taste there to keep people hooked. And uh, <laughs> until next time. He, I, was, I was trying to come up with a saying there, because I normally say like when it's a sleep related podcast, sleep well. What would you say to people? Stay cool. Yeah. Stay cool. Thanks, Stay cool. Thanks, Ross. Thanks, Ian. Catch up.